This is Gene Delcourt and Rachel Fields with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Oral arguments to dismiss a lawsuit in Wisconsin that would invalidate the state's abortion ban will begin on May 4th. The lawsuit was brought by State Attorney General Josh Call, who argued that the abortion ban that dates back to 1849 contradicts more modern laws and is invalid after years of disuse. The movement to dismiss that lawsuit was brought by a conservative district attorney from Sheboygan, who argues that Call has overstepped and the matter should be decided by the legislature, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Now the case goes before a Dane County Circuit Court judge, who could issue a summary decision or take a few months to consider. No matter the decision, the matter is likely to reach the Wisconsin Supreme Court, whose political makeup will be determined in tomorrow's election. Governor Evers signed his first bill in his second term today, a law meant to curtail reckless driving. The new law will allow law enforcement to impound vehicles if the owner is cited for reckless driving, has previously been cited, and has an outstanding fine for that previous citation. The bill was passed by the legislature earlier this year with broad bipartisan support. Evers has announced that increasing road safety is a top budget priority for his administration, going into budget negotiations for the 2023 biennial budget. A Madison resident raised over $2 million for trans healthcare last week during a live stream on TikTok. Last year, Mercury Stardust raised five times her goal amount while live streaming on TikTok for International Transgender Day of Visibility. This year, she has raised more than $2.2 million for the Point of Pride nonprofit, which works to provide gender-affirming support to trans people around the world. Tomorrow's Election Day in Wisconsin, with several important races to be decided, including for Mayor of Madison, and to determine the political makeup of the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Polls will open at 7 a.m. across the state and will be open until 8 p.m. If you're still in line at 8 p.m., stay in line and you'll be able to cast your ballot. Voters can register at their polling locations and should bring proof of residence if they're planning on doing so. Sample ballots, guidance on how to register, and a list of polling locations can be can all be found on the Madison City Clerk's office website. Still need help deciding who to vote for? The WORT News Department has their own voting guide, including interviews with almost every candidate on the ballot and explanations on the referenda that will be appearing on the ballot as well. And now on to today's top stories. Tomorrow, voters will cast their ballots for a bevy of state and local candidates and referendums. WORT has interviewed almost every candidate for Madison mayor, alder, and school board judge, and local news outlets have also interviewed those dozens of candidates. But coverage of more rural races can be harder to find. That was the case for WORT producer Nate Wegehout, who decided to call up the candidates running for school board in his hometown of Belleville. The village of Belleville, population just over 2,500 people, sits on the border of Green and Dane counties, about 30 minutes south of Madison. It's also where I've lived since middle school, minus a few years away for college. Outside of statewide races, there's only one contested race on Belleville's ballot this year, the race for Belleville School Board. All things considered, the Belleville School District is doing well, at least according to the State Department of Public Instruction, which said in their 2021-2022 school district report card that the district was, quote, exceeding expectations. But like many other school districts across the state, funding is one of their biggest concerns. 
Last year, Belleville voters approved a referendum to allow the district to raise taxes and exceed their levy limit by nearly $1 million for operational costs, such as paying staff and maintaining school facilities. With three open seats and five candidates, I reached out to those candidates to learn more about their top issues. Maxine Ward has lived in the village of Belleville for 55 years. A semi-retired accountant and former village trustee, she says that she wants to bring her financial knowledge to the district. Ward says that while she is hopeful that this year's state budget will bring more money into the district, they can't keep relying on raising taxes through referendums forever just to keep the doors open. I am really for all the students to have a good education, but it has to be done at a rate financially that the residents who are supporting the school board and have to pay taxes, they have to be able to afford it as well. Katie Worley is a quality manager at Epic and has two young children, one of which just started school this year. She says that she recognizes that all students are different and that all students learn differently. To make sure that all students leave the district with a desire to learn, she says they need to do everything they can to retain quality and passionate teachers. They should feel empowered to practice in the ways that align with, you know, what they what they got into education for in the first place. You know, in allowing our teachers to teach in a way that makes the most sense to them and removing as many, like, kind of those checkboxes is what I like to think of. You know, certainly there are state and federal requirements that we need to meet, but I'm also curious to know, at our district level, like what other expectations do we put on teachers that we could potentially remove so that teachers can feel more empowered to practice in a way that makes the most sense to them. Trina cleaver Polly works in the State Transportation Department and has been involved in the local PTO and sports boosters for years. In addition to supporting the mental health of both students and teachers, Polly says that she thinks the district should do more to prepare students who may not choose to continue school once they graduate. I think students need to continue to be able to have the classes and the availability of those classes while retaining the best teachers. So pay pay equity for teachers along with students being able to not just have to be for the students going to college or technical. It's all the different areas that students be able to make them whole and make them better members of our community. Jill Remy is the first of two incumbents running to keep their seat and declined an interview with WORT. In a questionnaire from the League of Women Voters, Remy says her top priority is finding ways to provide a high-quality education for students while navigating the budget constraints facing the district. Specifically, Remy says that she would continue to push to increase both math and reading scores. She pointed to the fact that the district has already hired new instructional coaches in reading and math and has helped to create new math curricula in recent years. Ryan Kubli did not respond to multiple requests for comment on his election, but did respond to a questionnaire from the Post-Messenger Recorder, the newspaper of record for Belleville and the nearby towns of Monticello and New Claris. Kubli is the second incumbent on the ballot looking to retain his seat, which he's held for six years. With two daughters currently enrolled in Belleville schools, he told the recorder he will continue to find ways to support teachers through teaching assistants and interventionists and keeping class sizes small. Belleville's polling place in City Hall and the hundreds of other polling locations across Wisconsin will be open tomorrow from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. If you are in line by 8 p.m., stay in line and you can still cast a ballot. Make sure to bring an acceptable voting ID with you. 
You can register at the polls tomorrow. If you need to update your registration, you'll need to bring a proof of residence document, like a utility bill or bank statement. To find out where to vote and to see a sample ballot and find all of the races on your ballot, visit MyVoteWisconsin at myvote.wi.gov. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuckyhout. With the new legislative session, marijuana legalization is once again up for discussion. The Wisconsin Policy Forum hosted a webinar last Friday with two key legislators on the issue. And while they agreed on the need for legalization, they had different views about getting there. WORT reporter Kelsey Krogan has the story. The webinar was joined by two legislators arguing for marijuana legalization. Senator Mary Felskowski, a Republican from Irma, and Senate Minority Leader Melissa Agard, a Democrat from Madison. A fall 2022 Marquette Law School poll found that two-thirds of registered voters support marijuana legalization. Senator Melissa Agard, who's in favor of legalizing weed for recreational use, cited that statistic. The most dangerous thing about cannabis in Wisconsin is that it remains illegal. We have a very successful illicit industry in the state of Wisconsin, as well as the fact that 50% of our population, as you have pointed out, is within an hour and a half of a dispensary. Prohibition did not work with alcohol, didn't work with margarine. I mean, it's not working with cannabis policy in our state. And as we're watching the state's rights march across our nation when it comes to cannabis policy, we're seeing that the ground is not dropping out in other communities. I mean, being an island of prohibition, as Wisconsin is, does not provide more safety and security for our state. And additionally, it does not provide for the, the prosperity that we could be offering, as well as personal liberties and freedom to According our to the Wisconsin Policy Forum, all Wisconsin residents, 21 and up, live within a 75-minute drive of a dispensary in a neighboring state. And those nearby dispensaries are raising revenue off of Wisconsinites. A memo last month, produced by the state's fiscal analysis agency, found that Illinois alone generated more than $36 million dollars off of cannabis taxes last year, just off of sales made to Wisconsin residents. Both Senator Agard and Senator Felskowski are against taxing the sale of marijuana if it is legalized in the state. I don't think that medicine should be taxed. So certainly in the bill that I have been drafting, the medicinal component, we would not be taxing people's access to a medicine. I do think that the tax revenue and the fees that would be collected in the state of Wisconsin, as well as residual economic stimulus from having a cannabis industry is good for the economy. But that is not the main reason why I believe that we should be legalizing cannabis. That's according to Senator Agard, who introduced the first full legalization bill in Wisconsin history a decade ago and has gone on to repeatedly introduce legalization bills since. Democrats have repeatedly tried to introduce marijuana legislation, but have been blocked by the Republican-controlled legislature. Senator Felskowski is one of the few Republicans advocating for a change to Wisconsin's marijuana laws. In 2019, she co-authored a bill to legalize the sale of certain types of medical marijuana. She says her personal experience sparked her stance. Well, in January of 2014, I was diagnosed with breast cancer for the second time. The first time was fairly mild. I did not chemo and radiation, only surgery. The second time around, it was stage four, and it was it was very touch and go for me. I also had to, as I was going through the chemo treatments, I had to take Nuestra, which is a shot that jumpstarts your white blood cell. Well, and of course, 5% people react to that with very 
very debilitating pain. I was lucky enough to be one of those 5%. And I ended up living on opioids. Literally every three and a half hours, I was taking Oxycontin and then I was taking hydrocodone and, you know, back and forth. And I just remember having the conversation with my oncologist at the time, because I was, I was in my first term going into my second term in the assembly. And I said, should medical marijuana be available to treat this? And his answer to me was, Mary, he said, it's not a silver bullet. It is like any other, whether it's an herb or a medicine, it will be very effective for some, it will be mildly effective for some, and it won't work for others. But he said, it's another tool in the toolbox. And for those that it does work for, we should be, he said, I would like to see us be able to utilize it. Friday's webinar touched on the distinction between medical or recreational legalization of marijuana. Dr. David Galbus Ridge is a physician and addiction specialist and the immediate past president of the Wisconsin Society of Addiction Medicine. He says that legalizing marijuana for medical use would create complications for doctors. The term medical is very concerning. Physicians don't know how to use it. We are not trained to use herbal. We are not naturalists. We are physicians. We're trained to use FDA-approved, scientifically-based medications that have a known purity standard. Though some states have chosen to legalize marijuana, it's still federally classified as a Schedule I drug. Different local, state, and federal classifications have created a patchwork of legality across the nation. The recent federal loosening of rules for CBD, which uses the same cannabis plant with a lower concentration of THC, has only complicated the matter. But Dr. David Galbus Ridge says that federal ban means that statewide legalization is a non-starter. We can't write a prescription for cannabis, period. It's illegal federally. So I know a physician anywhere in the country can write a prescription for cannabis unless it's one of the FDA-approved cannabinoids. We can write a recommendation, which is what most states call it. He added that healthcare workers should be at the table for any decision related to cannabis. Governor Evers has again included legalization of medical and recreational marijuana in this year's biennial budget proposal. Under his proposal, Wisconsin residents over the age of 21 could purchase and possess up to two ounces of marijuana for personal use and could grow up to six cannabis plants for their own use. It's Evers' third time introducing a budget proposal to loosen cannabis laws in the state. In 2021, the governor proposed recreational and medical legalization. In 2019, Evers proposed decriminalization and medical cannabis. While those measures were blocked by the Republican-controlled legislature, some movement could be on the horizon. The top Republican in each chamber indicated earlier this year that they'd be willing to move on legalizing medical marijuana this session. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Kelsey Krogan. Folks living around Park Street were asked to close their windows and stay indoors Friday night as a fire destroyed a building that was home to multiple businesses. While there are no reported injuries from the fire, the building that held a metal art studio and an auto shop was completely destroyed. Madison Fire Department spokesperson Cynthia Schuster spoke with WRT producer Nate Wagehout about the fire earlier today. As severe storms made their way through south-central Wisconsin on Friday night, the building at 1804 South Park Street went up in flames in a three-alarm fire, with the fire department not leaving the scene until yesterday afternoon. While there were no injuries from the fire, the building burned to the ground as investigators continue to search for the exact cause of that fire. Joining me now is Cynthia Schuster, spokesperson for the Madison Fire Department. Cynthia, thank you so much for talking with me. Happy to be here. 
what exactly happened on Friday night? When did this fire begin and what happened once the fire department arrived on the scene? Yeah, we started receiving 911 calls for this fire at 7.25 p.m. on Friday night. There were multiple 911 callers, and they were reporting that there was a building on fire on Park Street. Um, Some had reported seeing flames shooting through the roof already. So what happens when we get a a call like this is um, our 911 dispatchers immediately send out what's called a structure fire response. And that sends three engine companies, two ladder trucks, an ambulance, and command car 31 out the door. And we at that point have the, the location and that there is a fire underway that just gets us out as soon as we can so we can get there faster. When there's a confirmed structure fire like there was on Friday night with reported flames, we also add in an extra engine company and an ambulance. But what happened was as soon as our crews began to arrive on scene and they saw the the gravity of the situation, the call was immediately escalated to a two alarm, which means we then sent more crews in that would include two more engine companies, a ladder company, and a squad. And that uh, that kind of began the, the firefight. We were on scene within just a couple of minutes and began flowing water. There was really no safe way to do any kind of interior search, so we had to start doing what we call a defensive attack with having um, water streams flowing from above from our aerial ladders as well as from any, any anywhere that we can make an effective attack. And that carried on well into the night. I want to say it was about 3 a.m. Saturday morning where it got to a point that we felt that the fire was under control. And uh, as you noted, we kept crews on scene throughout Saturday to continue to dig through the rubble and put out hot spots. And then uh, by Saturday night, we were pretty confident we had all of the fire out, but we still kept firefighters on scene to do what we call fire watch, just make sure we didn't miss anything, make sure nothing's flaring back up. And by four o'clock Sunday, we were pretty confident that in fact, everything had been out. We did not see any other flare ups or hot spots. And now, obviously, all of this sort of happened while a major storm was making its way through the Madison area. Did that storm affect the efforts to put out that fire, either one way or the other? In a way, it did. I mean, um, you know, our firefighters are well accustomed to doing their job in all types of weather conditions. And I'll remember we had a polar vortex a few years ago with the structure fire and the pictures of our firefighters basically coated in ice um, when they were done. So they're, they're well accustomed to it, but it does add some greater considerations for safety. And in the case of Friday night, there were really a high wind gusts. Um, late into the evening, that wind will fuel a fire as well. So while we were doing everything we could to keep the fire under control, the the wind certainly wasn't helping us. And now, uh, like I said, this fire was labeled a three-alarm fire, which is something that we hear from time to time. But what, is, what does that actually mean? What is the definition of a three-alarm fire? So <laughs> the definition is a little different for each fire department because each fire department has a different protocol for how they handle it. But um, for us, it meant that, you know, with our two alarm response and all those rigs that I, I initially mentioned, we still identified that we still need more resources or at the very least you want to be prepared to need more resources. So around nine o'clock Friday night, it was decided let's, let's bring in a third alarm response, which then sent us two more engine companies and one more ladder company. Uh, that's, additionally 12 
12 more firefighters to the scene. And they're there to help cycle out crews. You know, people can, uh, they might need more air in their breathing apparatus. They might simply need a drink of water and take a rest. So to have more crews on scene is better than to have fewer. We want to make sure that um, we're staying ahead of the situation. And now, so like I said, investigators are still working to find the exact cause of that fire on Friday night. How long does it usually take for investigators to to find the cause of a fire like this? It really depends because every situation is different. And fire investigation is inherently challenging because you're dealing with destruction. And that can mean that the evidence that's really key to solving the mystery has been destroyed. So they're currently doing what they can to talk to neighbors, witnesses, building owners, occupants, to try to identify what was going on on that property just prior to the 911 call. And also we are um, reviewing, you know, ring cams and security footage to see was there a lightning strike on the property, uh, given that there was severe weather passing through at the time. You know, these things have not been ruled out. So our investigators are trying to kind of hypothesize what possibly could have occurred and then rule out those possibilities to try to hone in on the specific cause of the fire. And just sort of wrapping things up a little bit here, do you have just any final thoughts on on any of this that you would like to share with us here, Cynthia? Well, um, I would say that <laughs> the with with a call like this, public safety is our utmost concern. So we appreciate all that our partners had done to ensure not only firefighter safety, but community safety. We had MG&E on scene throughout the incident to ensure that security, or sorry, that utilities were secured. That would be, you know, natural gas service, electricity, um, so that the already hazardous situation wasn't compounded by other factors. We also had um, city engineering come out and ensure that the nearby Winger Creek wasn't impacted environmentally. And we can safely say that um, we did not use any firefighting foam on that scene. We also um, just want to thank the public for being respectful of the boundaries that we set. We had to advise the people in the vicinity to keep their windows closed and their uh, and to stay indoors because there was a lot of smoke that night and we we wanted to ensure people were staying healthy and safe. We also had to shut down South Park Street for quite a while, and we know that that's a busy thoroughfare. So we just want to thank the community for being so cooperative and supportive of us um, during that time. I've been talking with Cynthia Schuster, spokesperson for the Madison Fire Department, about the fire that took place on South Park Street on Friday night. Cynthia, thank you so much for talking with me today. You're welcome. The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields, here with my co-host, Jean Delcourt. Thanks for joining us. Every Monday, we check in with Brenda Conkle and Dylan Brogan to take a look at what's happening this week in city and county government. This week, the county branches out their tree outreach while the city takes a light load ahead of tomorrow's election. It's Monday, and we're speaking with Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com about what is happening this week in local government. 
So it's election week, which always, uh, you know, kind of shortens things up a little bit, but we still have plenty to talk about. We'll start with Dane County happening right now. It's a joint meeting of the county and the city. It's the City County Homeless Issues Committee. So that's virtual. Tell us about that, Brenda. So they're getting two presentations. One's about uh, some of the data that we have that we collect in our community. The point in time count is where we go out and count everybody on one night to see how many people there are out there. And that's usually in January, sometimes in July um, as well as a second date that we would do. And then also they're just looking at a bunch of the, the data that people have been working on to try to gather about doubled up communities. And then they're going to get a report on the gaps analysis that the Funders Committee of the Homeless Services Consortium has been working on. And then there's a couple updates on the men's shelter and COVID-19. They're not taking the night off. No, they're busy, busy, busy. <laughs> yes. Uh, and just for good measure, at six o'clock, uh, the Youth Commission uh, convened and they're talking about their award ceremony prep. So this is the Youth for Youth Subcommittee. So best of luck to the youth. Tuesday uh, at 4 p.m., there, this is election day, a little unusual to have a meeting uh, on election day, but it's the Tree Board Outreach Work Group. So they're getting together at 4 p.m. Um, looks like a virtual meeting. Yeah, I see something here about WORT. That's kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, there. This is the group that does a lot of the like websites, social media, PSAs, and presentations. And it looks like they are uh, brainstorming a plan to work on work for outreach. So uh, that's exciting. <laughs> Some tree outreach. Yes, they're branching out. Can't have too much. <laughs> All right. Well, and then on Wednesday, uh, everyone remember to vote uh, if you haven't already. But on Wednesday at twelve fifteen. We have the Criminal Justice Council and their Community Court Advisory Subcommittee, which is meeting at 12.15 in the afternoon uh, via Zoom. Looks like they're getting a presentation on community courts and the Center for Justice Innovation. Uh, Somebody named Lindsay Price Jackson will be there to do a presentation on that. And then they're just going to talk about uh, scheduling and some expectations of the committee. All right, cool. 3 p.m. We have the Park Commission Heritage Center. Or the what is this? What's going on here? <laughs> this is a basically they're inviting people to stop by between three and five uh, to see the mural that they have created out at Lake Farm Park and to connect with the um, artist that is out there, Sonia Sankaran. So yeah, it's it's sort of an open house. Meet the artist uh, unveiling of the mural. So could be could be something interesting. Yeah, and that's at 3101 Lake Farm Road in Madison. So if you want to see a new mural, they're inviting you to check it out. And the Board of Health, another joint meeting, the Board of Health for Madison and Dane County. Uh, They're meeting at the Water Utility Building over there on Olin Ave. And love getting an update on communicable diseases. Easy for you to say communicable diseases as well as a public health immunization update. Um, so we'll get, be getting those two updates. And then there's a whole bunch of about four or five um, items where they are getting money. They seem to do real well with their grants. And so they, there's some grants that they're accepting or applying for. And then they have a whole series of reports. And then we're moving on to the city of Madison now. The Landmarks Commission, they're meeting virtually. They got started at 5 p.m. today. Looks like one property that they're talking about. Yep, there was a couple. There was at least one other item on the agenda, and it's getting referred to a future meeting. Um, they will be having a guest speaker 
Ethan Boot from Rethos, which is a, a historic preservation nonprofit based in Minnesota. So they'll be looking at the, uh, getting that presentation and then they'll also um, be looking at 112 South Hancock. There's some exterior alterations that they're going to do. And then they just have a long list of demolitions and the secretary's report. 530, already in progress, the Mass and Arts Commission. They're having their grants panel review and that's virtual. Yeah, they had two two last week and one this week this this week, they'll be talking about dance, theater, film, and arts education grants. Um, they had different grants that they reviewed last week. And so each group gets about 10 minutes to do their presentation and, and ask some questions. And then the group will make a decision afterwards. Well, that's good to know just because we'll we'll see what comes out of all that, right? Yep. Not too much going on because it's election week. But, um, you know, once the new council's sworn in, maybe a new mayor. Well, who knows? Uh, there will be a lot to talk about once again, won't there? There certainly will be. So, yeah, third Tuesday of April is when the new council gets sworn in, possibly a new mayor, and then uh, everybody gets their appointments that day and they elect a new council president and vice president. So lots to look forward to third Tuesday in April. Yeah. And well, and if even if the current mayor is reelected, right, she's got to swear the oath again, right? Yep. Yep. Everybody. Yeah. Everybody all gets re-sworn in for the that term. Yes. And I assume at some point the board of canvassers will be meeting uh, to check everything out. Yeah, they usually meet on the Friday after Election Day. Brenda Conkle, ForwardLookout.com. Hey, thank you for taking time out of your day to tell us what's happening in local government. No problem. See you, Dylan. This Thursday is the anniversary of the start of the Scottsboro Boys Trial, where nine African-American youths were falsely charged with the rape of two white women. They would have been victims of a Jim Crow-era legal lynching in 1931 if Communist Party-led activist pressure and their best legal team had not intervened. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. This Thursday, April 6th, is the anniversary of the start of the Scottsboro Boys Trial in Scottsboro, Alabama in 1931. The case showed that African Americans and whites working together could beat the odds and stop the Alabama death machine. The story began a few days earlier when nine black youths were riding a freight train looking for work in the Great Depression, a widespread practice that was technically illegal. Traveling from Chattanooga, Tennessee to Scottsboro, Alabama, they encountered a gang of white youths in the same car. According to one of the black youths, Haywood Patterson, one of the white boys, he stepped on my hand and liked to have knocked me off the train. I didn't say anything then, but the same guy brushed against me again and liked to push me off the car. I caught hold of the side of the tanker to keep from falling off. A fight started and the blacks kicked the white youths off the train. Angry and embarrassed, the white youths hurried to report the incident, blaming the black youths. The local train master alerted the sheriff at Scottsboro. Unbeknownst to the white youths, there were two young white women, dressed as men, riding the freight car as well. When the train pulled into the station, the white women claimed they had been raped, apparently out of fear of arrest for hopping the train and for suspicion of prostitution. The youth were met by an angry mob and arrested. The sheriff sent the women to two local doctors who found no evidence of sexual assault. News of the attack spread, and by the end of the day, hundreds had gathered outside the jail, demanding that N-word be turned over for lynching. 
The sheriff responded dramatically, saying he would kill the first man who came through the door to take his prisoners. He also called the governor, and 25 National Guardsmen came to his aid and moved the young men to a sturdier jail in a nearby town. Back in the 1880s, 200 African Americans were lynched each year, and lynchers were rarely prosecuted, virtually never convicted. But by 1930, the rate of lynching had dropped sharply, replaced by speedy trials with guilty verdicts. In many instances, law enforcement officials explicitly promised lynch mobs that black defendants would be quickly tried and executed if the mob would just go home quietly. This explains much of what happened next. Both local papers covered the story as if the Scottsboro boys were guilty. After only 12 days, four trials in just four days ended in convictions. The women's testimony was enough for the all-white juries. Death sentences were handed down to all of them except the 13-year-old Roy Wright. This would have been a standard practice and lost to history except for what happened next. The Communist Party, CP, and their legal wing, the International Labor Defense, ILD, contacted the families and the young men quickly organizing the best legal team available and mobilizing a national protest movement. This occurred as the NAACP hesitated to get involved until it was clear the men were innocent. The N- NAACP later tried to intervene in the case because of pressure from members and the widespread publicity made them feel they couldn't afford to stay out of the case. The NAACP appealed to the families to distance themselves from the communists, but the defendants chose to be represented by the ILD. The NAACP appealed to one of their supporters, Clarence Darrow, to become involved, but the ILD demanded he sever ties with the NAACP first. Darrow declined. The CP organized rallies, especially in the North, and the Scottsboro Boys' mothers were especially effective at speaking there. The protests led to Supreme Court involvement, overturning the convictions in 1932 and demanding a retrial because of inadequate legal representation in the initial trial. Later, Supreme Court rulings about the case focused on the injustice of all white juries. In succeeding years, the defendants were tried three times, and eventually charges were dropped against four of the defendants. All but two of them served prison sentences. One was shot in prison by a guard, two escaped and were returned to prison. Patterson escaped from prison in 1948 and two years later wrote his book before being arrested. The Michigan governor, however, refused to allow his extradition to Alabama. Later, during a bar fight, he stabbed a man and was convicted of manslaughter. He died of cancer while serving a second sentence in 1962. In 1946, Clarence Norris, the oldest of the defendants and the only one sentenced to death, went into hiding upon being paroled. He was pardoned by Governor George Wallace in 1976 and authored a biography in 1979. He died in 1989, the last survivor of the Scottsboro Boys. In 2013, after the Alabama legislature passed a law permitting posthumous pardons. All nine of the Scottsboro boys received full and unconditional pardons. And that is our story for today. For the past is the past. I'm Harry Richardson. Friday night saw severe weather hit south-central Wisconsin with multiple confirmed tornadoes throughout the region. Potentially severe storms may be making a return to Madison tomorrow as folks across the state go out to cast their ballots. WORT weather producer Caitlin Davis breaks out down what you need to look out for on Election Day. The spring season of fluctuating weather can bring a lot of unstable air masses across the country, just like we saw this last Friday evening. And unfortunately, we will be seeing more of this coming Tuesday. 
When new fronts quickly emerge, it creates a lot of unstable air in the atmosphere, causing a lot of these big storm systems and cells. Last Friday, squall lines and bow echoes were forming. Squall lines are systems of thunderstorms that occur ahead of a cold front, where wind shear and unusually widespread lifting of the lower level of the atmosphere causes convection to be formed into a line. Bow echoes can be embedded in squall lines. They usually come from a cluster of storms or by a supercell. Something you may have heard a lot on Friday was straight line winds, but what are they? They are thunderstorm winds that have no rotation. With straight line winds, downbursts are often accompanied by them. A downburst are powerful winds descending from a thunderstorm that spread out quickly once they hit the ground. Although there is no rotation associated with these winds, they are still super dangerous and can exceed 100 miles per hour. So when you are hearing that there are straight line winds and no rotation, but the TV or radio tells you that you need to take cover, take cover. These winds can be as high as an F1 tornado, and they still do a lot of damage, so although there is no rotation, it could still be very dangerous. Current temperatures in Madison are sitting at around 50 degrees, and slow winds blowing from 4 miles per hour are coming from the south, southeast. Humidity is sitting at around 60%, and we are seeing some showers across the Madison area. Into tonight, temperatures will drop into the 40s, and low winds and rain will continue overnight. Tuesday is an alert day, the day of the storm cells again, and something to be aware of. Although the warm front accompanied by the threat is looking to stay to the south of us, we should still be preparing in case of a shift in the storm as there will be instability. This front is looking to possibly move into the Wisconsin area in the evening. Strong thunderstorms and hail are looking to be associated with this front. We will be seeing a high of 48 on Tuesday with showers in the morning and late afternoon thunderstorms will develop with a chance of them being severe in the early afternoon. Again, into the evening, be prepared for hail, damaging wind, and possible tornadoes in the area. Winds will be blowing from 15 to 25 miles per hour with much larger gusts. Wednesday morning, we will be seeing scattered thunderstorms followed by high winds, but it should clear up into mostly sunny skies come the afternoon. We will be seeing a high of 63 degrees, one of the nicer days this week, but temperatures will be falling almost 20 degrees from the day throughout the night. High winds are to be expected blowing from 20 to 30 miles per hour with even higher gusts. The UV is looking to reach 5 on Wednesday, which is one of the highest that we have seen so far this year. Thursday is looking to be sunny with a high of 48 degrees. Winds will still be high between 15 to 25 miles per hour with even higher wind gusts. The UV again will reach 5. Overnight will be cold. Temperatures dropping down into the 20s accompanied by high wind speeds will be making a cool evening. Friday is looking to be partly cloudy with a high of 53 degrees and light winds. Saturday is looking to be a nice day with a high in the 60s and partly sunny skies with light winds. If you're looking for a nice Easter, we should be seeing one. A high in the 60s should be present with some occasional showers, but they should hold off into the afternoon. There'll be a higher chance of showers into the evening and the low is looking to drop into the 40s overnight. For a quick recap, be sure to be aware on Tuesday into the evening. If you're able to, get your car into a garage or under something that can protect it from the hail. You should move anything outdoors, indoors that can blow away, and keep your TV or radio on. 
Although the majority is looking to stay to the south of us, it is always better to be safe and prepare. I cannot stress enough, these storms are currently looking to be very powerful storms. Again, Tuesday is an official alert day, so be aware and be safe. In case of high winds, be in a basement or be in a storm cellar if you have one. If you don't have a basement or live in an apartment building, get on the lowest floor and find a small windowless room in the interior of the building. Usually being in a bathtub or in an inner hallway is stable. Bring blankets and other heavy things that can cover you in case any glass shatters. Remember to be safe and be smart on Tuesday. Have a great rest of your week and have a happy Easter. For WORT News, I'm your weather producer, Caitlin Davis. Today, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new features on the small screen. First is The Big Door Prize, a new comedy drama about a community with a magical machine that tells them their true potential, streaming on Apple+. On a more serious note is African Folktales Reimagined, six shorts updating traditional folktales from new African directors from several different countries. It just started showing on Netflix. I think I have everything I ever wanted. Maybe you didn't want enough. This machine, magic or not, is reminding people our lives have more than one possible path. That was clip from the trailer for The Big Door Prize, a new series that just dropped three episodes on Apple+. The show has been compared to the old Twilight Zone, but less cynical. I'm not sure that is quite fair to the Twilight Zone. It seems like lazy shorthand to describe a show that has science fiction elements with a real-world feel setting. In any case, this new show has an interesting premise and does a fine job of involving us in its interesting, quirky characters. The story is based on an M.O. Walsh novel about people in the small town of Deerfield and what happens to them when a strange magical machine appears in the general store. The machine's label reads Morpho and purports to reveal to anyone their true potential. This hits some people harder than others. Some teens seem unaffected. They think they have a lot of different options. The adults, though, take it more seriously, some too seriously. Each episode focuses on one character. We get a real sense of their lives in about a half hour. In episode one, Dusty, Chris O'Dowd, is a contented man. He is celebrating his 40th birthday with his spouse, Cass, Gabriella, Dennis, and their teen daughter, Trina, Amara Jowlit. They seem like a typical happy family, but all is not what it seems. Dusty's best present seems to be an adult-sized scooter. He rides it to work the next day, stopping for coffee at the general store, where he finds the curious Morpho machine. The proprietor explains that it just appeared and that it seems to be good for business. Dusty is at first suspicious and becomes one of the town's few holdouts. He gets to work, he's a teacher at the local high school, and we begin to see the town's troubles. Jacob, Sammy Forless, one of the kids in Dusty's class, has lost his brother in a car accident. Episode 2, Cass, focuses on Dusty's spouse, whose card reads Royalty, which seems to embolden her to stand up to her mom, a knick-knack clothing store owner and town mayor, and be more assertive with Dusty and other people. Episode 3 focuses on Jacob and what he is going through after his brother's death. It ends with the local priest, Father Reuben, Damon Gupton, one of the last holdouts, getting his card. The store owner thinks it's a tribute to the priest's calling, but Reuben, in a private moment, despairs at what it says. I'm looking forward to seeing the rest of the series, 10 episodes in all. Now for something more serious, stories from a faraway land.
And that was a clip from the trailer for African Folk Tales Reimagined, which just started playing on Netflix. The six shorts are from new African filmmakers who were selected from 2,000 applicants from 13 different countries in a competition sponsored by Netflix and UNESCO. The shorts are mostly in the country's indigenous languages. The English subtitles come by too fast in some of the stories. Overall, the tales are pretty grim, updating traditional folk tales to give them modern resonance. I could have used a background primer to understand their broader cultural context, but there are also some universal themes. Many of the films center on women, their place in various traditional cultures, and their struggles to be free. Halima's Choice is set in Nigeria. It is directed by Khorid Aziz and uses a sci-fi theme to show a woman trying to escape an arranged marriage. It is in the indigenous Hausu language. Halima lives in an isolated village in a future where 99% have uploaded themselves from the grim reality to an ideal virtual world. Anyago and the Ogre, told in Kiswali in English, is from Kenya, directed by Voline Ogutu. The fantasy drama mixes a child's folk story with an all-too-real story of domestic abuse. Katera of the Punishment Island is almost an upbeat story. It is directed by Lukman Ali from Uganda. The story is in Rayonkol in English. A woman takes revenge on a powerful man who has hurt her. There is an echo of American westerns in the story, including the music. Katopi is a fantasy drama directed by Walt Mazengi Corey from Tanzania about a magical child and sacrifice. Enmity Dinjin is directed by Mohamed Uyikuma Maritania about a woman confronting a Dinjin twice. Lastly, Mami Ambo, directed by Geobisa Yako from South Africa about a river goddess and the modern suffering of women. It was a difficult, if worthwhile, series to watch, probably not in one setting. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Your reporter was Kelsey Krogan. Your weather producer was Caitlin Davis. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brenda Conkle, Dylan Brogan, and Nicholas Leet for technical production. Madison's most revered Scotsman, Victor Calzoni, engineered the show. Nate Weggehout produced this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. And I'm your host, Gene Delcourt. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcasts. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most freeform show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night.